0: The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9/11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of Architects and Engineers 9/11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Free Fall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Today we're joined by Ray McGinnis. He is the author of a fascinating book. I just read it this week. It's called uh, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. We'll be talking a lot about that today and going way back in time to the immediate aftermath of September 11th within the first few years. Why do we have a 9-11 Truth Movement? It's because the 9-11 Commission itself was a total whitewash, in my opinion, and I think our guest today is going to agree with me. Uh, Now, Ray holds a BA in Religious Studies from the University of Toronto and a Diploma in Christian Education from the Center for Christian Studies. He has served as a national staff for youth and young adult ministries with the United Church of Canada. So we're going to welcome him in, and I'm still trying to fix the audio problems that we had last week, so for this episode only, I'm going to have to be Reaching over into the corner here to add our guests in. Ray.
1: Okay, hi.
0: Welcome to 9-11 Freefall.
1: Great to be with you, Andy. Good to be here.
0: So I am excited to have this conversation with you because I have read your book this week. We're not going to be able to talk about all of it, obviously. We've got an hour uh, of programming, uh, but we're going to try to hit the important points. And there's things in the book that Uh, I found fascinating that I I sort of knew about, but I didn't think too deeply about because I'm always focused on the World Trade Center evidence and all of the technical uh, stuff involved with that. But I want to hit on those points as well. But because this is the first time you've ever been on the show, I'm going to ask you your 9/11 story. Where were you on the day of September 11th? How did you find out that the country or the world, I would say in a certain way, was under attack? and what what woke you up to this issue of 9-11 Truth?
1: So uh, I'm a Canadian citizen, I live in Vancouver, and on September 11th, I was at a retreat setting in Joshua Tree National Park in Southeastern California. I was with 60 Americans from across about 20 states who had gathered for, kind of relooking at their lives and I'd gone for a walk that morning up early because at that time of the year in the desert it is very hot by midday and I'd gone for a walk I saw a plane flying overhead I saw some cactus and maybe a coyote and I headed back to uh, the uh, hall where people were having a program stretching before breakfast And so uh, in the middle of the stretching, uh, one of the leaders came into the room and had people stand in a circle and had been on the phone with uh, someone who was a friend of theirs out in the East Coast and told us that uh, the Twin Towers had been hit and the Pentagon had been hit. Uh, the buildings were still standing at that time, but that—or uh, well, that—that's what they thought. And uh, there were some people in the room who had a financial advisor who managed their stock portfolio, who worked in the Twin Towers. He lived, but they were very worried that he might have died. Uh, and so uh, it was very palpable, and people were, you know, sh- shrieks and everything. And uh, I couldn't leave, uh, go back to Canada because all the planes were grounded in domestic U.S. airspace. I was not a member of one of the Bin Laden family members or friends, so I didn't get to fly off to Saudi Arabia or anything. So I eventually took a plane back to, uh, not a plane, I took a a bus (laughs) back uh, from Seattle up to the uh, Canada-U.S. border through Blaine, Washington, and back up to Vancouver. I heard uh, our former foreign affairs minister, Lord Axworthy in Canada, uh, speak about how he thought that the response to what had happened as we were being told uh, by the Bush administration, he thought that the best response was a police and intelligence operation to apprehend the name prime suspect and to have a trial somewhere. Uh, Of course, what happened was uh, the war in Afghanistan, uh there was the anthrax attacks the, the drum beat up to the war in 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 iraq um i was mostly uh, you know i follow the news i'm teaching writing workshops i'm involved in some peace protests around the Ar- iraq war canada did not go to war in iraq uh but uh you know as the, as the news unfolds you know i um i was not um Apprised of, of questions that people were raising about September 11th in, in the media up here in Canada. Uh, I did see Condoleezza Rice on a cameo appearance uh, uh, during the 9 11 Commission at Friends House. And may I mention that in 1991, I, I was upset with the coverage of the Gulf War, and I decided at that point that I would not have a television. So, I'm one of these people who didn't watch what happened on September 11th and actually I didn't see the uh, of, of the towers uh, on a TV screen until about 2005. So uh, the 9-11 Commission uh, had its findings, a uh, report came out, uh, if that was reported in Vancouver I must have been involved with a writing workshop that week and missed it entirely. So, in two thousand and seven, uh, there was a book that I found in an airport bookstore called "Wake Up Call: The Political Education of a 9/11 Widow" by Kristen Brightwiser, whose uh, whose husband Ron had died in the South Tower, and uh, involved in the Family Steering Committee for the 9/11 Independent Commission. I was, you know, I was really surprised that I could go six years without hearing anything about these families of the victims and their efforts. I went online and and watched 9/11 Press for Truth. I went to the Family Steering Committee's website. I went to Paul Thompson's website and got his book on the Terror Timeline, and you know, then began reading more things, uh, David Ray Griffin books, uh, a number of a number of different books over the years. Uh, so that's sort of my my trajectory into this, and I d- never expected I would write a book uh, about this. I was just you know archiving things, but as the years rolled on, I'm t- I'm teaching people who take writing workshops, mostly women in their you know thirties and most of the people uh, they're very smart, uh, they're creative, uh, mostly middle class, uh, but they're not news hounds. Uh, the people taking my writing workshop are not people who are uh, watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox or I mean they may they may read the newspaper but they're not they're not news hounds and and so I knew that the people that take my workshops could be interested in this story but they were not people who would who would be inclined to buy a book by Kevin Ryan on another nineteen uh, with the suspects um, or David Ray Griffin or or watch necessarily a, a loose change video, because uh, that's not their way in. Uh, and they're also they would uh, probably consider any any suggestion in a book that begins with uh, false flag or inside job they would consider it slanted and wouldn't give it the time of day. But I thought that if a book could be written that follows with interest the journey of the families from from grief and loss to advocacy to Washington D.C. getting an Uh, getting their uh, uh, inquiry finally after the stonewalling and follows uh, the way that the families tried to keep the 9-11 commission on track and then the diverse points of view from within that dozen members of the family steering committee over the years that that could be an interesting uh, book for them to read that they would start to care about and learn about who these family members are who they lost uh, learn about uh, the the (laughs) The uh, the sabotage and, and stonewalling and and uh, and the way that the nine eleven commission was run, uh, and so I that was that was my way my way into becoming uh, you know interested enough to write a book and to finally be on your show here today.
0: I mean, very interesting. I love hearing how people got into this topic, and it's so strange to see how there's so many different people from different walks of life all over this world who uh come to it in their own kind of way different backgrounds and different journeys and all that um let's jump into it first of all why did you zero in on the 9-11 commission and the families and the unanswered questions
1: well for me the families um insofar as i would get into discussions uh as i began to read uh you know paul thompson's book look at the What's now the HistoryCommons.org website, which is from time to time not online, uh, and looking at the family's questions, if I would talk about about uh, concerns that people have that uh, that are not sure that the story of record is legitimate, uh, one of the first objections that I was confronted with in in conversation at a party or dinner t- dinner conversation was. Uh, you know, how dare you ask these questions? This is disrespectful to the families. And and so I thought, well, if, if for a certain portion of the general public, uh, people are not asking questions or questioning the story they've been told about September 11th out of deference to the families, I thought, well, a way into having a conversation is to look at what the families actually asked the 9-11 commission and to remember that when the families uh presented there are many hundreds of questions if not about 1100 questions by my count to the 9-11 commission that the commissioners themselves said thank you families you know before the press they said thank you families these are great questions and we're going to use these as a roadmap to uh to do our investigation And then to find out that only 9% of the questions were addressed with any seriousness, another 20% were were touched on lightly, and then 70% were ignored completely. Uh, And so I thought that's a way to say, well, these are the questions the families asked, and so let's look at them and treat those questions as a a framework. Um, And so because I took on that assignment, I didn't know who all the people were on the family steering committee as I began to write about this. Uh, And this is a story uh, that's a different one for an author to write about uh, than writing about, say, the history of the 9-11 truth movement. That would be uh, an easier, uh, well, there's diversity within the truth movement, but it would be about a book about um, deep skepticism, um, fingers of suspicion pointing at uh, people in the United States, government, and and elsewhere, depending on who you talk to. Uh, But with the Family Steering Committee, uh, five of the 12 people who uh, told the press how they voted in 2000, three of those five on the family steering committee voted for President Bush. So it's a different story about how they get to, uh, it's like layers of of being disenchanted. There's, you know, Mindy Kleinberg, who lost her husband, Alan, says that, you know, she was always hopeful the government would answer her questions. And uh, Patty Cassaza, whose husband John died in the North Tower, uh, you know, she's a nursing student. She, she thought that, you know, having voted for President Bush, he would, of course, want an inquiry. And so one of the first uh, obstacles for the families that they had to kind of, uh, you know, the cold water in their face was that uh, President Bush and Vice President Cheney didn't want to have any investigation at all. So there's just a whole layer of, of obstacles they run into, which, which then eventually, by the time the commission's report comes out, causes a fracture in the points of view uh, within the Family Steering Committee.
0: One of the things that really shocked me when I was first waking up to 9-11 Truth was that there was no desire by our federal government to have an investigation into one of the worst attacks on our soil in our entire history. You know, as an ordinary person who's not involved in any of these things, not just speaking for myself, but probably speaking for most of the population out there, you just assume that the 9-11 commission was the inevitable result of 9-11 happening. That the first thing that you do, taking all of the inside job stuff out of it, the first thing that you do is investigate how did this happen, who screwed up, fire some people, and actually try to get at the truth so that it never happens again. But they actually fought the idea of having a commission and looking into this. Even though it's mutilating our entire foreign policy and our domestic policy here in the United States. And it's setting us on the course for wars that won't end for several years until the young people of that time are starting to grow gray hairs. Uh, Even though that all is the case, they did not want to have this investigated. And the Jersey widows were the ones who had to lobby in order for this to go forward, in order for there to be a 9-11 commission in the first place. Talk a little bit about their efforts and what they had to do for there to be a 9-11 commission in the first place.
1: So you've got, yeah, you've got the, the Jersey girls, the September 11th advocates, uh, Mindy Kleinberg, Lori Van Auken, Patty Casaza, and Kristen Breitweiser, who did not know each other before the, uh, the attacks, but, but met each other. Uh, there were numbers of uh, the, the, fa- the families began to gather, the government uh, wanted them to gather and tell them about the victims' compensation fund uh, because there was discussion in Congress about uh, a bailout package, I think $15 billion for the airlines, and in the middle of that conversation, one of the people in, in, on the floor of Congress said, oops, we better give something to the families or this is going to look bad. And so then the families are, are are meeting, the governments gathering them together, and tell them about the victims compensation fund, and people start to meet each other in the hallways, and and so the September 11th advocates gather, uh, and and they, these four women in New Jersey, you know, were you know firecrackers. They, you know, I mean Kristen breitweiser has like a two-year-old, so she, but she's got you know. Uh, Law uh, degree and she's uh, you know, they're they're looking at at questions. They can't sleep at night And so they're you know, they're reading uh, things online. They're they're going to newspapers and clipping things out and uh, And then they find uh, Paul Thompson's timeline Online which which put all the all kinds of connecting dots and connecting related stories in the news together uh, I think over 5,000 stories and so that helped that particular group put qu- form questions. You've also got the Skyscraper Safety Campaign, represented by Monica Gabrielle, whose uh, husband Richard died in the South Tower, and then Sally Regenhardt, whose probationary f- firefighter son Christian died. And they're concerned about like h- how do buildings collapse, and we want to make sure that uh, that firefighters, uh, you know, know what to do. Is there something else about building construction that's going on here that they need to understand, the stunning uh, demolition of these buildings. And so uh, th- then there's also a conservative group that's part of the Family Steering Committee, represented uh, the families of September 11th. Uh, and Robin Weiner, who's, whose brother Jeffrey died, and Carrie Lemack, whose mother Judy died, Judy LeRock died, are on it. That's uh, the most conservative family group or most establishment group. Robin Weiner has been working with members of Congress on political and legal matters. Um, Carrie Lemack will later say things like she's worried that Osama Bin Laden is going to kill four million Americans. Uh, And then you've got Bill Harvey who's uh, with another group. Uh, He's voted twice for President George H.W. Bush and for George W. Bush. Uh, And then you've got the people in the Voices of September 11th, uh, who are Beverly Eckert, who doesn't take the victims' compensation fund and wants to go uh, to court against the government, and then Mary Fetchett and Carol Ashley, uh, who are also part of that group. So, you know, you've got a range of different of different people with different uh, perspectives, and yet, uh, you know, w- w- I think spearheading with the fa- with this with the Jersey girls, the, the women. Uh, You also have, I I think, other questions that are added to the pile by these other people in the room. I know that Mary Fetchett, in her testimony before the 9-11 Commission in March of 2003, focused especially on uh, on the evacuation procedures in the Twin Towers. And so take away any question about government complicity. Just what happened with that whole story is just astounding. And the answers given by the Port Authority to the press uh, one of the things that happened was that the, the rooftop access doors were locked. And and you have um, Port Authority people saying, well, we didn't want anyone up on the roof because we're concerned about suicide. And yet the South Tower, for example, has been open to the public. People can go up and pay admission fees on a daily basis from April 1973 until September 10th, 2001, and walk around and stroll around the rooftop of the South Tower and lean against the railings and get photo ops. It seemed that there was no concern by the Port Authority at any point that all of those tourists paying a lovely revenue stream all those 38 years would commit suicide, but suddenly they're saying on the 11th of September, "Oh, we're going to keep the South Tower locked locked up because we're concerned about suicide. So Anyway, that's there's just it's, it's, but there's a range of, of perspectives. But it's amazing that they got all these questions, uh, and and they and they <laughs> and, and that they were ignored as much as they were.
0: Uh, you know, what fascinates me is the just the whole story of the commission itself. And when you actually read your book and you other watch other films that have come out, I believe like P- Press for Truth. I watched back in the day, you see that this really was a good old boy commission designed to whitewash this entire affair. First, you have the fact that they don't want to investigate it. They want to use it. They want to run it on TV and and scare everybody into submission, but they don't want to investigate it and keep it from happening again. But then you have them trying to control it, to basically put on a show for the American public, for the world public, uh, and one of the things that uh, you bring up, it's hard not to, because it's part of the story, is the, the first person that they wanted to lead the commission, when I say they, I'm talking about
1: the government,
0: was Henry Kissinger, and the Jersey Widows had an issue with that. Now, what kind of issue would they have with Henry Kissinger leading the commission?
1: So, so you've got these uh, dozen people on the family steering committee, and uh, Henry Kissinger has invited them to his uh, fashionable office, apartment in man up up, upper Manhattan and uh and he turns on the heat uh uh thermometer up to a thermostat up to the top and and they're coming in winter coats and it's uh you know they're dressed for winter but uh it's it's like summertime uh Puerto Rico or something or Florida in the summertime in his apartment and so uh they start peeling off their coats and uh sweaters and and uh and he serves them coffee. And uh, I think it's Lori Van Auken asks, uh, you know, we just want to make sure, Doctor Kissinger, since you've been appointed to head this inquiry, that you don't have any conflicts of interest, that you don't have any uh, clients by the name of Bin Laden. And at that point, he's, he's pouring the coffee, spills it all over the table, uh, practically falls off the, off the couch, um, blames it on a fake eye. Uh, the women in the room are, 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 are all running off to the kitchen to get paper towel to sop up the, the coffee and on the table and everything. But, you know, the next day, you know, Monica Gabrielle says, you know, they were very happy with the result. Kissinger resigned, you know, uh, it seems that he did have clients with the name of Bin Laden. So, uh, so then they get, uh, Tom Keen, who's, uh, happens to be connected with, uh, with a consortium that's involved with interests in, the, in a pipeline across Afghanistan. And they get uh, Lee Hamilton, a longtime very good friend of both uh, Vice President Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, to pick up the torch. And so that's, uh, and, and that whole story, I mean, they, they find out about, uh, you know, who's that, that kind of involvement. $3, 000, $3 million is given to the 9 11 Commission. Uh, compared to you know 60 70 million to investigate the Clintons regarding whitewater and Monica Lewinsky and Vince Foster in the 1990s and and so there are you know I think the New York Times and other mainstream papers are are, are commenting that they think that the government is trying to starve the 9/11 Commission from being able to to do its job uh, for for months uh, there's you know people have to get Uh, The office for the 9-11 Commission is, uh, I think it's a CIA-related facility. And so all kinds of people need to get security clearances. And so a lot of the 80 Commission staff can't even get into the, you know, their, you know, get going, uh, slow walking, starting. They don't even have things like coffee makers and fax machines and so on for quite a while. And then there's uh, Philip Zellico, who's... uh, uh, Good friend and colleague with uh, Condoleezza Rice, co-authored a book with her. He's part of the Bush transition team, uh, pivotally involved in in helping people not connect the dots regarding the terrorist threat uh, as the Clinton administration understood it. Onto the uh, and keeping the people like Richard Clark out of the loop, uh, and also Zalico is involved in the. Uh, The paper that articulates the uh the position of preemptive war uh, for for going to war against uh iraq and the families find out about that but only in the spring of in march of 2004 so so there's a a lot that a lot that's going on to to hobble the, the commission and uh and one of the things that happens is that the uh in March of 2003, Philip Zellico and Ernst May, another senior counsel uh, for the 9/11 Commission, uh, put together uh, uh, it's like a draft of the 9/11 Commission report for its table of contents, uh, the chapter headings and subheadings. And Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton say we're agree we're going to keep this this a secret. And it's because normally when you're doing an investigation you go ahead and have the investigation and then you're able to see really what the chapter, what the chapters need to be. I mean, when I wrote my book, I, you know, I had maybe 10 or 11 different chapter headings and, and different avenues to go in. But then by the time I finished or getting close, I knew what, what each chapter heading had to be. And I didn't even get the titles right until, you know, you know, months before the book was, you know, in the year before the book was published. But here you've got, um, it seems that, you know, to Bob uh, McIlvain, whose, whose son Bobby Jr. died, uh, it seems that the fix was in, that the, the 9-11 commission was deciding what the story would be, what the story that they would tell about what happened on September 11th would be uh, in March of 2003. They knew what the narrative was going to be. And then they interviewed people and didn't interview people in order to to follow the narrative and then publish a report that would show uh, the story that they wanted to tell from the get-go.
0: Yeah, very similar to NEST. I mean, they started with a predetermined conclusion. They refused to look into the possibility that explosives brought down the Three Towers in New York that day, and what we have gotten from them is a total whitewash obfuscation. That's why we are taking them to court, but this is exactly the story. Of the 9-11 Commission and I, I have to really emphasize this on the show because a lot of people you know we at AE we only focus on the dynamics of the towers coming down but people still reference the 9-11 Commission even though uh, it was NIST that mainly got into our issue but they still reference the 9-11 Commission and I really want to stress this point of how much this was a good old boy network there was a part in your book and I want to make sure I get this right here Uh, where they're talking about subpoenaing documents from NORAD. And we're not going to get into all the airplane stuff at this moment, but I want to highlight this. Uh, They were talking about uh, Lee Hamilton, and he said something to the effect, this is regarding the whole issue of subpoenaing documents. He said, I've known Donald Rumsfeld 20 years, 30 years. Uh, When he said, 'I I will get that information for you, I took him at his word. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's nice that you have this night, this this BFF relationship with Mr. Rumsfeld, but maybe you shouldn't be investigating each other again. I mean, if my best friend is in trouble, and I'm a cop, let's say, in a parallel universe, you know, maybe I'm not the guy who should be investigating a crime that he's accused of. In this case, it's not even having to do with a crime, but it has to do with a me. Ma- I mean, if you believe the official story. It has to do with a major screw-up that costs people their lives. You should not be having your friends and buddies be the ones in charge of uh, deciding whether or not you should be held accountable uh, for, for at, least at the very most generous way to put it, uh, gross incompetence on that day. And there's things involving George Bush I want to get into that, again, everyone knows where I stand on 9-11 and what happened on that day. But if I were to be generous Uh, with the very least point to just gross incompetence as the commander-in-chief. But I just want to get your thoughts on that quote there, uh, you know, from Lee Hamilton and the fact that these guys are just so buddy-buddy and they're supposed to be investigating each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, Lee Lee Hamilton, uh, uh, families find out, uh, in addition to his long, uh, close relationship, I mean, the Hamiltons, Rumsfeld, and Cheney's would go away sometimes for, you know, Little vacations, and 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 Lee Hamilton was also on the uh, Iran Contra inquiry, and he said during that that he I I looked Oliver North in the face in the face, and I you know he he told me he, w- he w- wouldn't lie, and so I you know he believed him like you know if Lee Hamilton is told by anybody, no matter how how sketchy or or uh, how how much uh, information could cause a person to think, maybe this person isn't someone I can trust on this issue. Lee Hamilton's always always there, happy to, to be uh, you know, gullible, and he says he doesn't go for the jugular, and he certainly doesn't. And, and when you have Dahl Rumsfeld testifying, I think Tim Romer, is, uh, 9-11 commissioner, is asking, uh, they all have only five minutes to when they're when they're doing their 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 questioning, and then it's on the next commissioner for five minutes. And so these people can stonewall and uh, you know pivot and turn around and, and do backflips and and avoid things. And uh, Romer says, you know, uh, Secretary of Defense, did you um did you order uh, planes to uh, to be scrambled to defend the Pentagon? And Rumsfeld looks up at the clock. Uh, Maybe the drapery uh, admires the paint on the wall, takes in the furniture and says, did I uh, scramble jets to uh, defend the Pentagon? And then Lee Hamilton bangs the gavel and said, time's up, next question. And so I guess we can count that as one of the questions that was addressed during the 9-11 Commission. But we didn't get any answer. So it's just a, you know, a, Laurie Van Aken and Mindy Kleinberg told uh, reporter uh, Charlotte Dennett in Vermont in 2009, they were still, uh, uh, half jokingly, they said suffering from a diagnosable order called political betrayal syndrome. Because this kind of uh, political theater is what goes on throughout the 9-11 Commission.
0: That's right. I think it would serve our supporters and all the people watching this now to go back into C-SPAN. They probably have it and sit and watch these in the context of 20 years later. You know, a lot of us here in the American uh, public, and I keep on saying American, I guess that's because I live here, but, you know, in the world because this affected people. Uh, all over the world people from other countries died in the towers that day but go back and watch these knowing what you know now back then we were sort of still sort of shocked and awed and being told to duct tape saran wrap to our windows even though if there's a, no nuclear power plant anywhere near you they're still telling you to do it i mean just totally crazy times but now that we know what we know watch it and you can probably see uh the phoniness and a story that you just told about uh, lee hamilton and donald rumsfeld and lee covering for him Holding the gavel and not letting him, uh, not not forcing him to really address this, Um, so much can be said about that. And something that I remember, you know, seeing in press for truth, this shocked me was that uh, it was a struggle to try to get Bush and Cheney to testify. Now, uh, finally, they did, but there were stipulations on it that they could only do it while they are in the same room together. Now, again, putting all the stuff that we typically talk about here on this show to the side, as the President of the United States, I would be embarrassed to say that I can't talk to the 9-11 Commission unless I have my Vice President there babysitting me. I mean, what kind of man is that? What kind of Commander-in-Chief has to have the Vice President, the guy who's supposed to take over if something happens to him, his second in command, they're in the room watching over him, while he speaks to uh, the american people or to the people that are supposed to be investigating him i would be embarrassed if i was president and had that kind of stipulation i can speak for myself why can't he and then when he finally does do it he comes out and his whole demeanor is like you know i'm glad i did it you know it felt good yeah yeah like he just cleaned out the basement or something that he's yeah. been putting off for doing for a year it's just utterly ridiculous i would just i want to hear your commentary on this whole we're going to testify together and, and watch each other's backs during it.
1: Yeah, there's there's so uh, there's so much is wrong with with how that went. I mean, you're, the families wanted from the get go. They wanted uh, a real trial. They wanted a real inquiry. They wanted people to testify under oath. They wanted uh, subpoenas, which the nine eleven commission was was hardly did any uh and uh i mean they wanted public hearings too i mean lee hamilton was also against having public hearings he thought that they would be dangerous so here you've got uh, president bush and, and vice president cheney testifying not under oath together and saying whatever they have to say and it's never it's never been released we, we still don't know i don't think we still know what they said, they could have talked about golf for all we know. I mean, th- there, was, there was no, uh, there's nothing, uh, I think, that, that, that we have on record of, of whatever they said. And, and so it's, uh, you know, maybe, you know, you know, Bush likes to go when he goes off to Crawford much of the year during his, uh, his, his, his two terms and clean Bush, you know, you know clean up the brush in, in, his, in his ranch. You know, maybe they did something else besides talk. i I, I mean, because uh, for all intents and purposes uh, for the families, what they said um, didn't move the commission forward at all because nothing came out of it. They said they talked. whatever they said is is a mystery. and And that shouldn't be uh, given the gravity of uh, of what's happened here. And so uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, they should have asked questions about Dick Cheney, about, you know, since he was put in charge in in May of 2001 of of scheduling all the war games, uh, they should have asked him some questions about, you know, how does it happen that there's all these war games that just coincidentally happen to be going on on the day of September 11th. Um, You know, the questions that they should have been asking and. And maybe they did, but to not have any transcript all these years later uh, is uh, pretty damning of, especially when people uh, in the news uh, have uh, treated the 9-11 Commission after the report came out as kind of a gold standard of how to do an inquiry. You know, like if we have anything else we have to investigate in the years and the decades following the uh, 2004 9 uh, 11 commission report coming out, we can look to the 9 11 commission report as an example of how we want to do something like that again, uh, some other uh, crisis. And it's, it's anything but. It's, uh, you know, I mean, Harper's Magazine got it right that it's a whitewash, a cover up, and worse. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's political theater.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely theater. and What that is doing is it's reinforcing it in people's minds. I mean, I don't have any advertisers on this show, but let's say I did and somebody was selling a a pet rock. I mean, I could hold the thing up and say, this rock is amazing. It's got so many functions. You can do so many things. You can put it on your papers. You can throw it through somebody's window. You can do a lot of things with this rock and I could probably make it sound very exciting and good. And somebody might buy it. Um, There's people who are even better than that. And I believe that that all of this self-congratulation and all the politicians saying this is such a thorough and wonderful gold standard. I mean, for them, it probably was. It probably created a great diagram that if they want to pull off something else again, how to, how to uh, put on this show and have politicians for years afterwards citing it. Well, the 9-11 Commission did a great job investigating that. We don't need to uh, do anything else with it. You know, we used to hear this on C-SPAN all the time. We would have people call in. So for them, it probably was a gold standard, but in the sense of justice, and for the people, it did uh, ver- did nothing, basically. And there's you know, something else in that quote from Donald Rumsfeld, or actually it was from Lee Hamilton talking about Donald Rumsfeld, where he says, you know, if I'll get that information for you, and this is the context of subpoena and documents, you know, you're going to get information for somebody. Like, what kind of information is that? Somebody's going to tell me what somebody said? I'd rather read the email or the memo, you okay. know? And so that's just another window into what's going on there.
1: Yeah, I can exactly. give you another another window is, uh, I mean, when Kristen Breitweiser spoke before the joint uh, 9-11 inquiry of the Congress and Senate uh, in, Intelligence Committees on September 18th, 2002, she gave an electric testimony, uh, uh, you know, and she said things like, um, I'll just read this, how did the FBI know exactly where to go only a few hours after the attacks? How would the FBI know to visit a a store in Bangor Maine only hours after the attacks how do they know which neighborhoods which flight schools and which restaurants to investigate so soon in the case how are complete biographies of the terrorists and their accomplices created in such short time did our intelligence agencies already have open files on these men were they already investigating them could the attacks september 11th have been prevented now she's saying that all just out of her own passion they didn't know what she was going to say, and it just it just was a game-changer. And suddenly, the train was had left the station. And nothing could stop an investigation happening, and Bush signed one in November of 2002. But after the 9-11 Commission report comes out in July of 2004, Kristen Breitweiser, I think Beverly Eckhart, and a couple others are testifying before, uh, I think, a, com- a congressional committee, uh, and uh, Kristen Breitweiser is, is, you know, taken through all kinds of paces by by government staffers, making sure, what are you going to say the, to the committee? And they want to have an absolute transcript. They want to make sure that she doesn't say anything that's going to be off message or upsetting or that the press can run with. And so... Uh, she and the others would have been given the same kind of grill to make sure that they're not going to say anything that's going to be stir a commo- start a commotion. And so I know that when when then the same thing would have happened when when Mary Fetchett and Carrie Lemack and I think Robin Weiner maybe spoke to a, a Senate committee in in January of 2007, they would have also been, you know, they, they would be more agreeable, but they would be people who would have also, you know, they would have gone through their what your prepared statements are, just to make sure that that prepared statement is is cleaned up, so that there's no nobody on any alternative news site who's going to run with some sort of a, a headline regarding what some family member is saying. And so when when I watch uh, testimony about of, of any kind of uh, ordinary citizen speaking before a committee. I need to remember that as often as not, those people, what they've said has already been approved. So there's not going to be any kind of earth-shattering statement because it's, it's within a framework. And so uh, this is also part of what's going on. But most of us don't think about that. When we sit down and watch the evening news, we don't think uh, immediately about how people have been uh, put into a little box so that they make sure they don't say anything, that points to anything outside of that box.
0: Yeah, you know what that reminds me of? A quick story here. When I was in the Peace Square, we had to come home slightly early because there was a massacre in Andijan. This was in Uzbekistan. Yeah. And they sent all the Americans out. And uh, they, you know, you're getting rushed around from different one place to another. And you're getting this lecture <clears throat> about writing anything home to your family putting anything out on the internet. Now here's, this was the political situation. The United States was using that country as a, uh, as, uh, for an air force base to run the war in Afghanistan. And we were allies with this brutal dictator who just killed tons of people in one of his own cities. So it put the U S in this weird position. So that's why we had to go. But they're, they're telling us that if we write home that Al Qaeda might find out yeah. that there's Americans on an airplane and blow up the plane. That we're gonna, you know, we could all die if you tell anybody that you're coming home. But you know, we didn't come home. You know, they took us. They took us to some retreat place. It wasn't Camp David or anything, but it was some kind of government place. And then they just gave us all the food and beer that you could want for I don't know if it was like three days, four days, till the story died down. Now, I didn't know that this was the reason they were doing it this way at the time. But looking back, they were trying to sequester all the Americans who were there for this incident until the story left the news cycle and nobody cared about it anymore. That is how government works.
1: So, so they, they were not just trying to sample what you thought of their new gourmet burgers.
0: No, I mean, I was happy to have the food after eating rice for a year yeah. and a half here, but, but uh, no, but that's what it was all about. And you know we had nice hotel rooms I and mean, it was like a big sort of retreat in the woods with like just fancy luxurious stuff. And you're, you know, you're yeah. out there in, in a second world country for a long time, this seems all exciting and nice to come home to, but I I can kind of speculate on what the motive is now. Now I want to get into this because I uh, read your book, as I said, and an aspect of what people in the nine eleven truth movement have talked about for years, and I've always sort of just glazed over it because it didn't seem as big of a deal to me. It is a bigger deal to me now uh, after reading your your laying it, you know, your layout of it in the book. Uh, was Bush in the classroom. Now, I can remember on September 11th, I was a 22-year-old nobody in Tampa, sitting on the couch. I was about to turn the TV off. My friend said, wait, wait. And I looked, and there's a hole in the World Trade Center. And I sat down for 10 minutes uh, before I went into the shower to, uh, to wash this. And the first thing that I said is, I don't know anything about aviation, but somebody did this on purpose because there's got to be safeguards in place to keep something like this from happening. I mean, and there's no pilot who's going to accidentally fly into the World Trade Center. Now, later on, Bush was asked by a kid about what he thought about, you know, when he heard about the news about 9-11, and he said, oh, yeah, I I saw the the plane go in, and I thought, that's one really bad pilot. And then he ended up going off for that photo op at the school. Now, you're president of the United States. I don't know how old he was. He had to be in his 60s or something like that. You're the guy getting intelligence briefings every day, allegedly. You're the guy in charge. And you're not thinking that someone might have done this on purpose, In the first couple of minutes, and if you are thinking that, why aren't you just acknowledging it? And It's not running through your mind. I mean, I'm a 22-year-old nobody in Tampa who's doing a better job as president during 9-11 right there in those first few minutes than the guy who actually is president by thinking, hey, maybe somebody did this on purpose. Maybe I shouldn't go forward with this photo op until I have a handle on what's going on, until somebody from uh, whoever's in charge of being on the scene and investigating this gives me the all-clear that this was just an accident. Again, he doesn't know what's going to happen for the rest of the day, presumably. Uh, and so he's he gets this notice, and he still goes on with a photo op during a period where he's already, well, we'll say he won the election, um, where he's already, you know, he's not campaigning for re-election or anything, why does he do this? And again, you know, forgetting the whole aspects that we normally get into, this shows a great incompetence that needs to be studied here in the commander in chief on that day. And then, of course, while he's sitting in the classroom, he gets the word that there's another airplane. It's obviously being done on purpose, and he continues to sit there and read. And people say, "Oh, he didn't want to scare the kids." Look, you can leave a room as president of the United States. I'm mean, not. No one's saying that he has yeah. to get up screaming and running. He can okay. basically just excuse himself, thank the teacher, and leave and go deal with the situation. So it is very odd behavior, but I like, you know, that's my summation of the entire thing. You wrote the book on this, uh, so please go into a little bit more. What did Bush know? When did he find out? And just talk about what happened in that Florida classroom that day.
1: Yeah, I, I think he, that he was actually in, informed that a tower had hit, hit the, the building before he goes into the classroom. There are other people who are in the cavalcade, uh, you know, other other key staff that are connected to um, uh, to people in Washington D.C. Uh, who are hearing what's going on, and they and and they know that uh, that this is a terrorist attack. Uh, you have uh, the CIA director, George Tenet. Uh, on the phone at 8:50 uh, a.m., so four minutes after the North Tower is struck, and he's in the Regis, uh, Saint Regis Hotel, just blocks from the Washington, from the Capitol, uh, with uh, former Senator David Boren of Oklahoma, and he's talking to his counterpart in the CIA headquarters. Expressing uh, absolute confidence that that this is a terrorist attack, and that Osama bin Laden has done this. This is four minutes after the North Tower is struck, and so you know how you know how can you have uh, in in a government um, that's supposed to have people connected to each other? Uh, I mean, uh, how, how can it be that uh, that the I mean, there are people connected to the CIA and Secret Service that are you know, that, that are connected to the people who are in the cavalcade, you know, if not in the, in the cavalcade with the president uh, going up to the, floor, to the Florida school, they're on the phone with them. And, and so uh, to have one part of the government uh, be aware that it's a five alarm fire and the Osama bin Laden has just attacked America uh, and with, with a, a, an incredibly lucky pilot that flies at, at this speed and hits the tower Um, And then have another part of the government, which includes the president, not happen to, you know, trying to put put over the idea that they have not a clue what's really going on. And then even his reaction that the second tower is, is, you know, when Andy Card tells him. Plus also you've got um, the message when when. When uh, when Bush uh, is told that, and there's someone else who's holding a sign up at the back saying, "Don't say anything yet." I mean, what what's what is it that he might say <laughs> that that he's not supposed to say yet, or 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 what might he what might he say that they don't want him to say? And we've got. Uh, We've got a history of, of people saying the wrong thing sometimes. I mean, back in, in the mid 1970s, there was an investigation about domestic uh, uh, overreach on the part of the, the, the FBI and possibly the CIA in America. And it was a very blue ribbon conservative panel with a lot of insiders uh, in the beltway. And President Ford was asked, uh, you know, um, why, why is it? Why is this kind of thing? It's just going to be a whitewash. And he says, "Well, we have to do this because we want the American people to be confident. You know, they they need to to be you know have confidence in the government and not and not have anything that would uh, you know make them lose faith in, in in the government." And the reporter asks, "Well, like what?" We and Ford says, "Well, like assassinations." And so then the story goes, "Well, well, what what assassinations are are government agents involved in domestically?" in America that might upset the American people. This is 1974. And then, of course, a number of different investigations get launched because of Ford's oops. So, you know, who knows what kind of an oops Bush might have said and, but for having the sign to read saying, don't say anything yet.
0: Well, that's another aspect of it, too. I mean, again, I have no intention of running for president, and I would never uh, win, probably, if uh, it if a- if i wanted to uh but if i was i mean i I run my office i don't have people making the final decision for me and yet bush is being led around and again i would be embarrassed i would be embarrassed if i sat there somewhat helplessly in a classroom for 10 minutes while the country was under attack and they were even showing side by side images of the smoking towers and george bush and, you know, look, I'm not going to dive into it any deeper with speculation than, than I already have, but you got to wonder what's going on there. In one sense, again, putting aside anything that we have talked about in the past on this show uh, regarding insider complicity on 9-11, it does show a failing of the leadership at that point uh, in time and, and something that would have to be looked into as well. And not to mention this is that if, if I were president, I would not want my initial reaction captured on camera. It seems like that's something you would want to react to privately with your inner circle before you compose yourself and are in front of the entire world (laughs) wanting to see what you're doing uh, in response to this. So just none of it makes any sense, and I don't think we've ever gotten any real answers to it. It's definitely something that, you know, I put off to the side as suspicious. has nothing to do with controlled demolition in New York, but uh, it's just all part of the questions that uh, need to be asked.
1: It raised questions for Lori Van Auken who recounts that she was watching the TV screen with the split screen and the president in the classroom and the tower on fire and, uh, and she uh, says, you know, get up Mr. President. And She's like, how can the president, I mean given the story we've been told by the government that this is a surprise attack, why is there not any concern on the part of the Secret Service that the president might be a, a, a target too? Uh, we hear that Dick Cheney was, you know, taken, you know, or just grabbed, you know, by two two Secret Service agents and said, you're coming with us, sir, like about 9.03 or something like that in, in the morning. There's no questions asked. And yet uh, they're not concerned at all, it seems, that, that uh, you know, if there's some uh, somebody pl- uh, trying to attack America, that they would ever think, would the president of the United States be of any, any interest to them? Wouldn't that be kind of like the, the, uh, the cherry on top to be able to also have a terror strike and, and, and you know, kill the president of the United States? But no, there's just no, nonchalance, not, not, not a worry in the world. And stays and lingers to, to read the, the pet goat story and then stays outside for the photo op. It's very peculiar behavior, given his, he should be concerned about his own security.
0: Absolutely. I mean, look, disappointing the kids. I don't think that is going to be a major concern on a day like September 11th. They did evacuate the Capitol building. They did. Uh, my friend, I saw this. I didn't, but he said that he saw some army guy on television who looked like he was R.H. put in charge of defending the White House. He's like, "How would you like to at R.H. be in charge of defending the White House?" He looked terrified, yeah. according to my friend. So, um, it, you know, it's weird behavior and just add it to the list. That is the legacy of the 9-11 Commission to me. It's just a series of unanswered questions and I think really was the trigger for the 9-11 Truth Movement. I know there were people questioning the events on the day, but, you know, when the family members got involved and started speaking out, that really lit the fuse on what we are all part of now. Uh, in our last five minutes or so, what, to you, is the legacy of the 9-11 Commission?
1: So if it hadn't been for the 9-11 Commission report, uh, there wouldn't have been a fracturing of the consensus on the part of the families. The families really wanted to believe that the government would do the right thing, and and they issued nearly 50 press releases throughout the, the Commission's life, uh, some of them wanting Philip Zelikow to resign, uh, giving them bad report card and and so on, but still, those those um, press releases reflect uh, giving the government the benefit of the doubt about the 19 hijackers and Bin Laden. But once the press, once the report comes out in in July of 2004, then you have uh, family members who, on the one hand, are deciding you know even though they've only addressed <clears throat> you know. You know, nine percent seriously, and another twenty percent a little, a little bit, uh, and left the vast majority uh, unaddressed. We're going to just, you know, move on and try and, you know, like for Mary Fetchett, want to do, uh, you know, focus on the pragmatic things of getting the recommendations passed through Congress and the Senate. But then there are other family members, like the the Jersey girls, who uh, who say, no, this is we need a new investigation, and so that's uh, you know the legacy of the 9-11 commission is a fractured consensus on the part of the families. Um, It would be a very different story for me to write if the families had said, thank you, 9-11 Commission did a great job. It'd be harder for people, uh, for there to be a 9-11 truth movement at all if the families were always standing up in unison in front of microphones saying, the government issued their report and were, we're satisfied. But because there are many families that are not satisfied, uh, the questions still linger, and more and more uh, emerge as the as the years go by with freedom of information. And so, for the work that a nine eleven truth and other groups are doing, um, I think it's because uh, the nine eleven commission didn't do its job, and so a new investigation needs to happen.
0: That's right. Without the families being vigilant and doing what's right by their loved ones, we probably would not have a nine eleven truth movement as big as it is today and more people need to step forward if you are a family member and you've had these suspicions come out of the closet there is no harm there is no shame in saying you just simply have questions and raise those questions and uh you know let yourself be heard all right the name of the book is right behind me unanswered questions what the september 11th families asked and the 9 11 commission ignored you can get it on amazon uh, it's a very good book and uh, not very long. I mean, it's just it kind of the pages burn right by you because it's so fascinating, everything that Ray covers here. So, Ray, thank you so much for all the work that you've done for the 9-11 Truth Movement and for coming on 9-11 Freefall today.
1: Great to be with you, Andy. Thanks so much.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching 9-11 Freefall. And remember, if you have any suggestions, uh, ways to make the show better, write them into 911freefall.com. Have a good night. This program is on every Thursday night on No Lies Radio at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, and every other Sunday night on BBS Radio at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. You can also keep track of the archives by going to 911freefall.com. This is Edie Steele. Say have a great week. Good luck.